This is episode 30 of the Immunology Podcast, Comparative Immunology and Sharks with Dr. Hanover Matz. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rad. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast. We have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have a great episode with Dr. Hanover Matz from the University of Maryland on the podcast here to talk about his research on the B-cell repertoire and affinity maturation in sharks. It's a great comparative immunology and biology episode. And as usual, we've got our roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first... Stem Cell Technologies would like to introduce you to Immune Regulation News, a free weekly newsletter brought to you by the Stem Cell Science News Program, Covering research on the regulation, suppression, and modulation of the immune system, Immune Regulation News keeps reader current with the latest news, research, policy events, and jobs relevant to the immunology community. Subscribe for free at www.immuneregulationnews.com. Hey, Brenda, how are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, I know, you know, talking about the weather is kind of boring, but the sun is shining today, so that's, that's good. And also here, uh, not not too long from now, it's uh, Father's Day in the U.S. It is. And I have no idea what's going to happen. Usually, uh, the kids remember to do something where their schools have them make something for me. And so my my (laughs) desk gets ever fuller of awesome, cute, adorable things. Um, We'll we'll see what happens this year. Maybe a pasta uh, uh, sculpture or some nice drawings. Yeah, I got I get drawings. I get like paper ties. I get things my dad likes to do, like notes that they do, which are great. They did get my favorite drink as being coffee, so that was good. All right. Well, they they seem to know you for being so young. Glad they got got some some connection right there. Must mean I'm doing something right with the kids. So you going anywhere? Travel? More conferences? Uh, Conferences for the moment, no. I I do need to work in the lab so I can actually then go to conference and talk about stuff. So I think um, I have a lot of work ahead. How about you? You were at a conference, weren't you? I was at Digestive Disease Week. Yeah, which was amazing. Digestive Disease Week. That sounds fun. Any highlights? Let's see here. Um, It looks like commensal um, infection or commensal colonization by C. diff could be linked to colon cancer. That was pretty neat to see. Okay. Uh, there was some pretty good talks looking at different immune compartments regulating the gut as usual mm-hmm. at least in terms of this. Uh, some cool new stem cell systems, some really cool uh, organoids on a chip or gut on a chip technology I got to check out. That was exciting. I got to basically okay. see everyone I haven't gotten to see in years. So that was amazing. Yeah. There were some guests from our, from our show I saw uh, attending and too. And we have some future guests coming up too. That, we'll hint at, that, I, that I got to see there that, you know, we'll, we'll bring it up when they show up. But yeah, we have, we have both before and after. And then I'm going to the nice. microbiome manufacturing uh, conference in Boston in June. And then I'm going to okay. go to the FASEB GI conference in Steamboat Springs in August. Not bad. And that'll Not have bad. a good immunology thing for that. Maybe we'll, maybe I'll be able to an avid guest. They have about a half day of gut immunology at that one. So we'll see if I can grab someone to discuss the world's best immunology, you know, immune cell enterocyte. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep telling yourself that if it makes you happy. I support that. Well, so I see you have a lot of plans ahead. That's great. All right. Well, we should probably start reviewing these papers. So I'm just going to go keep right on the same theme. Go. 
and talk about newly recruited, recruited intraepithelial Li6A, CCR9, CD4 positive T cells protect against enteric viral infection. The first author is Ram Parsa. The last author is Daniel Makuda, and it is in press in immunity right now. So it's aiming for July 12th, 2022 is when it'll come out, but it's still in press. So this paper can get in the weeds really quick in terms of things that you would have to know about already to, to add on to. But what I think is cool from a high level is the gut has a lot of intraepithelial lymphocytes or IELs. They're, they're important for a lot of its functions. Um, some of them are resident and sit there all the time and hang out. Others move in during inactivation and, or, you know, during an infection or other process. And so this paper really looks at what those cells do, right? What some of the cells do. In this case, they look at, against specific infections. Um, the most, the one they spend the most time with are this norovirus CR6, but mostly adenovirus type 2. And they also compare it to a reovirus. And they really try to understand what happens to a T cell when it enters there. Now, one weird thing about IELs generally is they also, they, even the T cells have a cytotoxic profile to it and they start picking up CD8 again. So they're, they're, they're a weird immune cell. They're CD4 and CD8 positive, but they're not immature, right? They, 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 they reprogram to have both. Um, so that's known. In this case, what they find out at a high level is that in response to these um, specific viruses, a program that's Li6A or SCA1 high and chemokine receptor CCR9 high um, turn on. And so that, that's a marker of this population. And they then, through an IL-18 pathway, so IL-18 and then pterocytes signals to these cells to release interferon gamma, which reduces infectious burden over time and improves viral clearance. So that's the super top line. Now, what's interesting about this is that if you get infected by the adenovirus or the norovirus, the protection from one passes to another. And they showed this in mice and in organoid culture. But if you do the third virus, the um, reovirus, there wasn't cross-compatibility over to the other two. So it looked like you could take cells that were stimulated with one, put it into and then infect the mice with the other, and you have cross-protection in this case. And that could be that due to some shared pattern recognition going on with the T cell receptors. Um, and then from there, just the generic interferon response being very useful. So that was one bit of it. The other interesting thing, though, that I found was fascinating is that normally speaking at baseline, when you have an intraepithelial cell and it just hangs out there, it's like the, the steady state ones, the T cell receptor diversity drops. But in this case, during infection, the diversity goes up, which is interesting. So it's not a clonal expansion. It's actually a broad-based expansion in the response. And then lastly, they show that there is, you know, these are cells are cytotoxic and kind of map it out. And then they, they do the, the tissue-specific knockout mapping to demonstrate that it is, uh, if I remember, I, in, in antibodies, that it's IL-18-dependent and that it is... Um, this this uh, transcription factor THPOK or TPOK, which let me pull up that for people who don't remember, I always have to remember what this acronym is. It's T helper inducing POZ slash Krupa like factor THPOK is part of the is the transcription factor for this line, for this specific part of the CD4 lineage that matters. 
So they do tissue-specific knockouts to show if you ablate any of those things in that cascade, the whole system goes to heck. So how they do it, tissue-specific mice, they use lineage tracers for T cells to show that these cells, you know, are the ones coming in afterwards, right? So they hit them in the immature state, it recombines, and then you see it, that it's not the cells that are already there, but it's the new ones coming in doing this, so they do that. They do some single cell, they do some bulk RNA-C, they infect mice, and they do organoid culture, and then they map out this whole thing. So why is it super cool? I think it's interesting for a couple reasons. It's doing some interesting mapping of a response, but I think what's most interesting is that the T-cell receptor diversity goes up. You have cross-protection, and then it shows that IL-18 is really important for downstream driving interferon gamma. They also, by the way, show the T-cell receptor is really only important for activation of the cells, but if you do a tissue-specific drug-inducible ablation later on, it does not matter. So if you wait four days into the infection and then kill the T-cell receptor, they don't care. But if you do it right at the beginning, then you lose the protection. So it's only for activation of the immune cells that it matters. Once it starts pumping and they're ready to go, it's a T-cell receptor independent after they get there and hang out. But before they get there, it's not. Then it is dependent at that point. How do they do the ablation of the TCR? Tamoxifen-induced uh, genetic ablation. Oh, okay. So once the, the CD4 cells are going and are expressing cytokines, that's all they have to do. Right. Once they're there and tuned and being cytokines and they'll respond to that IL-18, they just keep responding to IL-18. I mean, I think it's not too surprising also that the diversity increases because if you're recruiting cells from the periphery, um, then it makes sense. If you're, if you're indiscriminately recruiting the cells just because of the, of the chemokine gradient, then they just go in and then it's kind of doesn't matter apparently what they're specific against. Yeah, I think that's the theory. Um, it's just interesting because most IELs are restricted more restrictive. So they're seeing the opposite of baseline. That was neat. Okay. But yeah, there you go. All right. Very interesting. Oh, CD4 is always doing cool stuff. I know. I like them. Well, I do have one of my stories is about CD4 is doing cool stuff in unexpected places. So, uh, but first I will move on to another unexpected, unexpected behavior from uh, cells, but in this case, dendritic cells. I'm going to talk about this paper from uh, Immunity uh, titled Dendritic Cells Can Prime Anti-Tumor CD8 T-cell Responses Through Major Histocompatibility Complex Cross-Dressing uh, from first author Brendan McNabb from the lab of Justin Klein at the University of Chicago. And kind of in a nutshell, what they show is, as the title suggests, that uh, dendritic cells in particular, they're looking at CDC1s, can express or kind of on their surface MHC1 derived directly from uh, tumor cells and use that to prime CD8 T cells um, against these tumors. So going a little bit more in detail, we know that CDC1s have this canonical function of cross-presenting antigen. They're capable of taking external antigen, for example, antigen coming from tumor cells and diverge it towards uh, their uh, uh, towards a presentation through MHC class one, which is is uh, focused mostly on in intracellular antigens, but then these cells are specialized in doing this. And they they are quite critical for priming CD8 cells. So we know this already. So this is basically CD103 positive 
CDC ones are known for being critical in many in many uh, different uh, contexts. Um, and so they have they have a couple of mouse uh, tumor models, and they start to study differentiate between true cross presentation, which includes uptake of external uh, antigen degradation and loading into endogenously generated MHC class one and then expression on the surface so that CD8 cells can recognize and can be primed by dendritic cells. And this, which is antigen cross-dressing in which the dendritic cells acquire and present intact peptide MHC complexes that are captured directly from neighboring cells, such as tumor cells. And so they do this by uh, basically, they have uh, these two tumor models, uh, uh, B16, uh, B16 melanoma expressing OVA and a C1498 leukemia model expressing OVA. And they look, so this, they basically show that um, if you knock out the MHC in these tumors, you reduce the priming of CD8 cells by dendritic cells. Of course, there's a difference between the, TC, the CD8 priming by, done by dendritic cells and, of course, the uh, cytotoxic function of CDH that that, of course, requires the expression of MHC class 1. So they don't look into that. Uh, and you would see, you would, of course, show that tumors that don't have MHC1 don't get... Uh, attacked by CD8 cells, but it's about the priming. So they, they, when they knock out MHC, so this particular uh, um, isoform of MHC that these tumors are expressing, they show that um, this, cross, this presentation is reduced, this priming is reduced. And if they also have models or they have uh, imaging in which they show that antigen-presenting cells in this mice, uh, if you have, for example, a GFP-labeled uh, MHC in the tumor cells, they are taking up, and you can see this GFP signal in APCs, in dendritic cells, and you can see this expressed on the surface of, of dendritic cells. So this is MHC that is of external tumor-derived sourcing, um, and that this is something that they, uh, somehow this MHC is captured by the dendritic cells and then recycled. We know that dendritic cells can recycle uh, MHCs, and they recycled together with the peptide they're showing, and it's just directly shown and presented on, on the surface of uh, CDC1s. And this is interesting because in the case of the CD1498 leukemia model, uh, they have this model antigen, this SIY antigen, and in this case, they show if they uh, prevent this cross-dressing. So they have uh, the these, this, this tumors that are uh, deficient in uh, MHC, these, this really curtails the uh, priming of CD8 cells. So it's very critical, actually, for the functional cytotoxic T cell priming in this, in this uh, tumor model. In the case of B16 melanoma, it's not indispensable, but it does contribute to the priming of the CD8 cells. And then, for example, they have, at some point, they also test, uh, they have a mouse model, uh, which is defective in CDC1 cross uh, in cross presentation specifically in CDC1s, and they show that in the case um, uh, in the case of the CD1419 uh, so CD1498 uh, tumor model, 
they they can still present, they can still prime CDH cells, even if they're unable to cross-present. So they just do it just by cross-dressing with the MHC from the tumor. So I think it's very cool. And there's this differences between different tumors that also show that uh, there's more than one way. And then, for example, they have another a sarcoma model in which if you don't cross-present, then the, primer, the priming is ablated. So this shows a little bit that there is this wiggling room or the, the, the different methods that dendritic cells can use to activate CD8 cells. And I think it's really cool because, I, again, I'm thinking of a previous story about trogrocytosis, for example, that you have not these cells taking up uh, markers from other cells they're in contact with. Interestingly, this in this case of this um, tumors, they doesn't seem to be trogocytosis uh, derived. It seems like it's more about kind of capture and, and recycling of the MHCs. Uh, so basically what they say, what they show is that in the case of these tumor models, cancer cell-derived MHC1 uh, uh, and, and peptide molecules can really prime the anti-tumor CD8 T-cell responses even uh, um, when cross-presentation, together with cross-presentation, and in some cases even replacing cross, true cross-presentation. So this, this is really cool. I always go to mechanism here. Do they describe how a dendritic cell like manages to suck in the whole kit and caboodle of another MHC with the protein, get it over and take it? Or is that more already known? Because um, I'm like, that that's pretty complex to take a whole protein, flip it, present it. So what they 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 have uh, point out that the this CDC ones, they don't have such acidic uh lysosomic um environments so that they it's not just that they can achieve kind of the, the molecules can stay stable and then just continue uh and, and being being kind of sh shuttled back to the membrane other dendritic cells are very acidic and then this this proteins can degrade it right there but apparently uh they don't i have to mean they don't go into a lot of detail they have uh they do show that it is taken up inside the dendritic cells. They have microscopy, which they show that this, in the case of GFP-labeled MHCs, they see it inside the dendritic cells, and then some, and then in some of the dendritic cells, they also see it in the surface. So it does seem like it gets internalized and then taken out again. Uh, but they are not able to describe exactly how that is done. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, to keep the party going, um, you know, it's another week. It's another day. It's another COVID paper on the immunology podcast. <laughs> there you go. What am I going to do? All right. This one is long COVID after breakthrough SARS-CoV-2 infection. Uh, first author is Ziad Ali. Last author is Yan Zi. It's in Nature Medicine. And it was published the 25th of May. So this is, it's, it's an interesting paper. I went with it because I think it's very relevant. It has some flaws, though, that I will point out. Uh, the biggest flaw being a retrospective study is always not good because chart review retrospective studies have some confounders that I don't think they can overcome. And they basically look at VA data, millions of people, people with infection, without infection from COVID that's been documented in the VA system, and then people with breakthrough infections after vaccination and not. So people, and they basically look at outcomes. And so they look at outcomes like how people get sick, get to the hospital, get in the ICU, die. And then, you know, if you're in the hospital or ICU, how many bad things happen to you? So that's the general structure. 
And not surprisingly, those who were exposed to COVID overall have worse outcomes than those who weren't even after breakthrough vaccination. But vaccination definitely protects you from COVID as, you know, outcomes as compared to no vaccination. And they try to use this paper to argue that, well, we need other mitigations for COVID then besides vaccination. What are the other controls and things like that? Which I understand where they're coming from here. I think the flaw, though, is that A, the N is small in terms of they have 3,340 individuals with breakthrough. And then compared to historical controls of 5.7 million, contemporary controls of 4.9 million, and vaccinated 2.5 million. Now, if I'm va- and, and and what they do is they say you have a breakthrough infection if you have symptoms of so- something happens to you you have some symptoms right no one cares if you're breakthrough and positive right something that the measure is an outcome that's bad and they go well how many bad outcomes do you have and we only know if you had a breakthrough infection because you're COVID positive because you got tested and so that's the confounder that I think really makes this paper hard is that if I am vaccinated and boosted and vaccinated and I get COVID and I don't test in the system, maybe I'm asymptomatic. Maybe I am symptomatic and don't get tested because I assume it's COVID and I don't care and I feel cruddy for a few days and it goes away. Maybe it's, te- I, I do get tested, but I do a home test. And so it's not a verified test in this system. And I stay home anyway, and I don't do anything. You're going to miss all of this. So I think this massively underreports the number of people who have breakthrough COVID infections that don't ever get seen because they don't get a test in the VA because the people don't care. They're not sick or they're not sick enough or they do a home test, what have you. It's going to miss all of those. And so it's only going to really report the people who are bad enough to have to go get a test either at the clinic or at in the hospital when they come in or what have you. So I think it's overemphasizing this. And I don't think it's a confounder they can get rid of. And I guess so, you can also assume that only like the worst, I think there's this idea that if you have m- really mild symptoms, probably, I don't know. like You're not going to get caught in the system with the way this tests. Yeah. What The only way to do this would be a, a prospective study where you randomly tested people once a week for COVID and then looked at the effect of those who were breakthrough positive in their long stream outcomes before and after, if you're vaccinated or not. Yeah. Right, where you're prospectively testing people for COVID and seeing their natural outcomes. And you randomize. But in this mm-hmm. case, it can't undercome this confounder. So I think it's interesting data, but I think the conclusion it's drawing of, oh, we should do more is probably not accurate. Is they're pre-selecting for the sickest people to then report on a saying having a problem. Yeah. So there's going to be a lot of people in the the non-COVID that might have had COVID. So this this difference gets diluted a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. Or a lot in this case. Yeah, that's difficult, right? You really want to try to use the information around to to I guess guide also guide policy. Uh, I think nowadays a lot of debate whether you know. Uh, we should be doing more. We should be regressing to some of some policies to reduce spread with of these new variants. Uh, and I think also it's not maybe rec- uh, advisable to get people overconfident uh, on these vaccines. And unfortunately, we we kind of know that they're becoming less and less efficient. And 
we should be pushing, I think, for better vaccines and some nasal vaccines, something like that. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing to remember is it's a respiratory virus. You have antibodies for five months, and you're probably going to be on a five-month cycle of surges in the world forever. Oh, that's because any great. vaccine you create, maybe, maybe the IgA vaccines will work, but we still don't, which we, we, we've talked about and they look really cool, but we also know the durability of the IgA response either. No, that's true. But I guess that if we can reduce the overall incidence and the transmission, that has to help. Well, right. But if only those antibodies are durable, that's the yeah. problem is that the antibodies go away. So transmission comes back because it's a respiratory virus. And so just like you have flu season once or twice a year yeah, because well, of the genetics just, of the antibodies. You just get a shot in your nose, in yeah. your little spray. Uh, that's not too bad. No. Once uh, every half year you get a spray, nose spray, check, check, and then you're done. That's I, I think that's something we can live with. Yep, if so only. There you go. COVID paper of the day. We actually made a whole week or two without COVID. So there I you know, go. I know. I know. Uh, we're trying to highlight other parts of immunology, you know, to otherwise it's always COVID. And there's so many interesting research going on, like the research I'm going to talk about. Smooth, smooth. Very nice transition, I know. Uh, this, as I said, again, is about uh, cells doing stuff in unexpected places. And I think this is very nice because, of course, it involves my favorite cell, the T-Rex, and a very important organ, the brain and uh, highlights what it's probably therapeutic potential of enhancing T-reg function in the brain to protect against tra uh, traumatic brain injuries, which it's a very important kind of therapeutic or therapy hole that we have. People that get traumatic brain injury, we just have to give them anti-inflammatories and just wait for them to get better. There's not much we can do about it. And so this is something that uh, the the last author the the um, uh, mentioned in a, in a talk actually I saw from him Adrian List, uh, Liston he mentions uh, when he starts his talk he talks about his brother also being suffering a traumatic uh, brain injury and him being really desperate and realizing that there's nothing you can do and so he uh, puts this as a uh, motivation to carry out this research, which I think is very, very nice. Uh, so paper, astrocyte targeted gene delivery of interleukin-2 specifically increases brain resident regulatory T-cell numbers and protects against pathological neuroinflammation, published in Nature. First authors Lydia Yishi, Emanuela Pasciuto, and Pascal Bielefeld from the labs of Matthew Holt and Adrian Liston. Uh, from the Catholic University of Leuven, that's in Belgium. Uh, so, what's the start? The, the start, kind of the 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 baseline for this. Uh, IL two concentrations in the brain are lower than you see in other places. So they actually measure in this paper. They show they're about ten times lower, and um, they also show that you have some resident uh, cells in the brain amongst them you do see very low amounts of, for example, T-Rex. And they argue that it is these unwelcoming uh, niche that makes these T-Rex levels very, very low because IL-2, which is critical for T-Rex survival and, act and activity, is very low, is very limiting. 
So they, they hypothesized that they could improve T-reg function by increasing the availability of IL-2. And this is, I think, very important because in the T-reg field, IL-2 is really seen as a preferentially T-reg cytokine, T-reg inducing cytokine at uh, because T-Rex expressed the CD25 receptor that makes them very sensitive to our IL-2. Uh, so uh, they they kind of go along these lines. And so they um, what they do is that they start with a mouse model uh, in which uh, IL-2 is expressing, is expressed with a um, it's an alpha cam K2 Cree uh, um, promoter, uh, so they are expressed specifically, so IL-2 is expressed specifically in, in neurons, and they see that indeed if they increase levels of IL-2 in the brain using this, they do see an increase in the uh, in, in T-Rex that also seem more activated in the brain. They don't see an increase of other T-cell subjects, but specifically of T-Rex. And they also see some other changes in the brain of these mice, uh, some um, increased MHC class 2 expression microglia in the brain, some PDL1. We also know, so it might be related to kind of interaction between the microglia and the T-Rex, who also express PD1. And the thing about T-Rex in the brain is that they are kind of a rather semi-transition population. They Usually they are cells that come from the periphery, they stay in the brain for a little while, some of them, and then they go back. So they are not tissue resident really forever, but they show with parabiosis experiments in which they have kind of mice with this uh, IL-2, brain-specific IL-2 production or neuron-specific IL-2 production together with wild-type mice. And they show that it's not about, uh, that there's no, that, that this, the, the, uh, the transgenic mice still have more T-Rex in their brain. Uh, so it does look like this IL-2, which is only observed in the brain, and there's no differences in the T-reg populations in the periphery, so that this is a very specific and a niche, uh, brain niche-specific phenomenon. And I think what's interesting, so they see they can increase T-reg uh, populations by giving them IL-2 specifically in the brain, which is different to giving systemic IL-2 that doesn't really make it into the brain because of the blood-brain barrier. And... What is interesting is then they, they have this model of traumatic brain injury, in which which is uh, known as controlled cortical impact model, in which basically they, they hit mice in the in, in the brain, uh, the poor things, and what you get is a lesion. Uh, in normal mice, you get a lesion, inflammation, and necrosis of a, of a certain surface of the cortex. So very very traumatic. But in the mice that are this IL two expressing mice, this T-Rex population seems to be protecting and reducing inflammation in the brain. And there is less uh, damage, there is less necrosis. Uh, there's no change in the influx of leukocytes, but there is kind of a reduction of the inflammation in general, which is what T-Rex do when they're there. So I think this is very interesting. And so they start like kind of thinking about how can we translate into a more useful model, because these are Cree mice, so you don't have Cree uh, people. So they start using a um, an, uh, a model which is basically uh, a, a viral delivery of a with an adeno associated virus, in which they are basically delivering the IL two in this way, and they are expressing it with a astrocyte specific promoter, and they show that again they can 
express IL-2, specifically from astrocytes or non-neurons. They think neurons are probably not a good target. Let's go for astrocytes. And they express, if they do this, they can express IL-2. And again, they can protect from the inflammation, from traumatic brain injury, and they also increase the amount of uh, MHC class 2 high microglia in the brain by using this. They also try other models of brain injury. They have stroke models and uh, EAE, uh, this model for MS, for multiple sclerosis in mice. And they also seem that they can help uh, against this other brain uh, CNS inflammation. So this model also helps. But what is important, especially for the stroke models, is that uh, in the case of the stroke models, it only helps if you have it before, so it's not really curative because it looks like it's too very quick. The damage from stroke is very quick, and it doesn't. So this model doesn't help. It helps if you have it before, if this this uh, this AAV uh, is, is injected before, and the cells are uh, are expressing IL two already. Um, but they do see that they can reduce, for example, EAE uh, progression in mice that already are showing symptoms. Very interesting. And they can also, and I think what is very, well, going back to the original original um, question is that they show that they can have a curative approach for traumatic brain injury model. So if they if they treat the mice with the, with the adeno-associated adeno virus after the, the, the injury, they can actually reduce the impact in the cortex of this mice. And just to finish, they also generate a different construct, thinking a bit further, like how can we get this into human patients? What if we can have a, a victim of traumatic brain injury and treat this person right away? So they have a they add another another layer of control. They have a, a um, uh, basically a, 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 um, an inducible model with a, a molecule called minocycline that is uh, can penetrate the blood-brain barrier. That that then with this they uh, uh, they uh, guide expression of IL two in astrocytes, and they 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 think that this, for example, could be a, poten a potential therapeutic uh, uh, product for for people with traumatic brain injuries. That's really cool. I'm a little sad about the traumatic injury model in the mice, but yeah, yeah. but no, but like the ability to induce the cytokine is pretty pretty neat. All right, well. We're going to be having a jawsome time uh, speaking to Dr. Hanover Motz at the University of Maryland in just a moment. But before we get to that, are you performing multiple rounds of cell isolations like Brenda and can get tired? Using stem cell technology's new Easy 250 Easy Set Magnet, you can scale up your cell isolation and process large volume samples like leukopax and whole bloods in a single round of separation. That way, you too can get out of the lab sooner. Obtain highly purified cells from samples of up to 225 mils in a single step. Learn more at stemcell.com slash easy250magnet. Joining us today for the podcast is Dr. Hanover Matz. He uh, is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Maryland. And I'm very excited because he studies immunology, but a particular uh, area of it that me as a mammalian immunologist are not, I'm not very uh, aware of, so I'm, I think I'm going to learn a lot today. What do you think, Jason? I think so. You know, we're, we're going to learn about, uh, I think, what, B cells? Mm-hmm. In which type of animal? Sharknados. Shark, well, sh just sharks. Just sharks, Jason. Please keep it. Keep it if you have a shark, here. you have a sharknado. But anyways, Hanover, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So maybe we can maybe build on our very uh, poor introduction and just tell us a little bit about the system that you study and yeah, just tell listeners what is your current research. Absolutely. So I recently completed my dissertation in the lab of Dr. Helen Dooley, and our lab is a comparative immunology lab. So we study the immune systems of cartilaginous fishes, which are the sharks and the rays. So cartilaginous fish are the oldest extant taxonomic group with an immune system like ours. They have B cells, they have T cells, they have major histocompatibility complex. And so they are the oldest living vertebrate lineage we can study where the adaptive immune system first evolved. So there are sort of two main groups of fish. When you think about fish, there's the cartilaginous fish I just described. And then there's the bony fish, which is probably what you typically think of. You know, zebrafish is a commonly used model system in that lineage. And then you also have amphibians, you have birds. There's not a lot of comparative immunology research in reptiles, but you also have reptiles. And so we can study all these different groups to understand how the immune system has evolved. And my boss and I often like to joke that many of us really are comparative immunologists, even if you work on mammals, because you're still studying mice, you know, you're not studying humans directly. So we're all doing some version of comparative immunology. So in sort of addition to understanding what's similar between sharks and humans, we can also study what's different between them. And, and one of the things that we study is this unique antibody isotype that they have called IGNR, and then we can apply that to different research scenarios. All right. So I, I am a zebrafish guy, or I used to be in a past life um, doing notobiotic zebrafish, because why not? Um, so starting there, maybe because some people have more familiarity with about that, you talked about how sharks are even older, which obviously, yes. But can you talk maybe the split between, if you can, shark and zebrafish and what really makes the shark extra interesting to study into besides the I, different Ig, and then maybe we'll jive into immunoglobulins? Sure. At the organization of the lymphoid tissue, sharks and other bony fish do not have a lymphatic system like humans. So their secondary lymphoid organ for generating B-cell responses is the spleen in sharks. And then sharks have B-cell follicles, but they don't have organized T-cell zones like we see in mammals. And then their immunoglobulin genes are organized in a cluster configuration. So they have different clusters of individual immunoglobulin genes instead of the translocon rearrangement that most immunologists are probably familiar with in mammals. So when you move through evolution to the bony fish, like zebrafish, that's actually where you start to see the emergence of the translocon immunoglobulin gene organization. Uh, but the bony fish are a really diver diverse group. So it's really interesting. They actually appear to have lost some of the organization of the B-cell follicles within the spleen. And they actually have these things called melanomacrophage centers, some species of rayfin fish that have been studied that appear to be organizing their immune responses. But when you're really looking at the shark system, that's really where you're looking at sort of the basal state of the organization of the, of the lymphoid tissue. Maybe continuing a little bit with the comparative immunology, particularly for, for some of our listeners that maybe never thought about the immune system of other types of vertebrates. Can I just play a little game with you, such as, you know, parts of the immune, different elements of the immune system, kind of similar, different, or very different? For example, when it comes to maybe more general innate immunity in, for example, uh, sharks and related and related fish uh, compared to mammalian, what, what are the main uh, differences or, or things or 
points in common, and then we can move on to a little bit of the different uh, groups, just to get an idea. Yeah. So some of the aspects of innate immunity, probably the main aspects that we're all familiar with, things like the complement system, innate immune cells that are organizing defenses, uh, most of those appear to be present within the cartilaginous fish. So they absolutely have a complement system. Uh, they share probably, from what we understand from transcriptomics, many of the cytokines with the innate immune system of mammals. Oh, but there are some differences. We do think that some components of their complement system may be missing, but we do hypothesize that they have robust innate immune defenses. When you think about the evolution of the immune system, most of the organisms on the planet are invertebrates. And most invertebrates, or all invertebrates, I should say, get by with just innate immunity. They don't have adaptive immune systems. So for most of evolution, innate immunity has been sufficient to protect the host from pathogens. So what's really interesting when you're comparing the immune system of just talking about sharks versus humans and their adaptive immune response, the adaptive immune response is much slower in sharks than it is in humans. You know, you can get RA when you vaccinate someone, you can see antibody titers start to rise maybe after a few weeks after vaccination. In sharks, it takes about a month to upwards of three months before we actually see what we assume to be protective titers rising against an antigen. So that suggests that most of the time their innate immune system is doing the job of protecting the host and that perhaps it's in cases where you need uh, maybe it's more you know, chronic antigen stimulation, maybe it's more long-term memory protection is where the adaptive immune system then comes into play. It's something we're still trying to actively understand, but they do have a robust functional innate immune system. We, we hypothesize that they have macrophages and dendritic cells. There's, there's evidence to support that, but we don't know much about subtypes of cells like you do in mice or in humans. Unfortunately, we really don't have the markers of the reagents, but we're working on that. That's an active area of research. So along those lines, selective pressure, right? So you talked about most things can handle just with an innate immune system. Humans obviously have a very sophisticated adaptive immune system. Sharks seem to be obviously earlier in the evolutionary branch, slower. What do you, do you guys have a sense from saying the shark, what drove any of the needs for an adaptive immune system? Is it the size of the organism perhaps? Is it like, like, I don't know. What would you have any sense from like studying this? Like these are the things it really helps with that would be bad if a shark didn't have. It's an excellent question. And it's been a major component of my dissertation research. So one of the things that we've always hypothesized when I was talking about this slow adaptive response is part of this probably has to do with metabolism, right? If you're an ectothermic vertebrate, which is the majority of the vertebrates that aren't birds and mammals, and you have a cold blooded system, your immune response may simply not function as quickly due to kinetics. But that doesn't really help explain why you have this system in the first place, because if it's too slow to help you, well, sharks have been swimming around for millions of years and they haven't gone extinct from pathogens, they should be all right. What is the advantage, like you said, to evolving the adaptive immune system? Now, one of the things that my dissertation focused on was how do sharks organize their B cell responses in the absence of germinal centers? Because they don't have germinal centers like we observe in the tissues of mammals. And what some of my research has shown is that possibly the advantage of adaptive immunity was it gave you this system of receptor diversification when you think about putting out different antibodies against different pathogen epitopes to give you long-term protection in case you get challenged with different pathogen variants. And so that's something that might be advantageous to a larger long-lived animal like a shark, which produces fewer offspring, Rather, when you compare that to some invertebrate species, which has a shorter generation time, you know, you think about Drosophila, 
we can raise multiple generations of Drosophila in a lab, perhaps they can sort of evolve to keep up with pathogen variants. You know, this red queen hypothesis, you're always evolving to stay in place. Whereas uh, a long-lived vertebrate like a shark, which doesn't have that, that short generation time, now an adaptive immune system that provides immunological memory, that may be protective and give you a selective advantage. Do you think this also has to do with how far they roam? Like, you know, bigger creatures kind of, that Drosophila is probably not traversing that many square miles, but sharks move. Humans, right? We were very mobile, even way back right now, before cars, like we would wander, right? And so if you move further away, you're going to find more diversity of things that may want to, you know, kill you. That absolutely is something that I've thought about. And I think it's a really interesting question to ask in the context of sort of ecological immunology is, you know, how far the geographic range of an organism, does that affect or influence how diverse of an immune system it needs to evolve to deal with pathogens? I think it's an excellent question. And I do think it's something that we've seen with the ongoing pandemic that when you sort of expand the range and the different types of pathogens that you encounter, this is a new problem for the immune system to solve. If you're sort of a sedentary organism or you don't have that large geographic range, maybe then um, an innate immune system is sufficient. But I think there's a lot of caveats to that idea because certainly there are invertebrates that can cover large distances. Um, there's certainly um, vertebrates that probably don't range maybe nearly as far, but I think there are different comparisons that you could do there. There are certainly shark species that are much more localized versus shark species that maybe, you know, cross the entire Atlantic Ocean and, and do large distances like that. I would argue also, just finish this, I would argue that uh, having an adaptive immune system also is quite expensive, quite uh, uh, energy-wise, and also the risk of autoimmunity also adds an extra layer of complexity, and then you need a lot of other checkpoints to make sure that this enhanced uh, capacity to react to different pathogens or to kind of evolve internally does not end up uh, uh, playing against you. So I would say that that's also maybe some, some other, other animals. Yeah. The, 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 just the calculation doesn't, doesn't add up in the end. Absolutely. And it was something that came up during the course of my dissertation research. When you think about somatic hypermutation as a mechanism for introducing mutations into immunoglobulin sequences, that's a double-edged sword, like you said. You can, you can mutate towards a higher affinity receptor for your B-cell receptor, but you can also mutate away from binding to the epitope of the pathogen. And even worse, you can mutate towards autoimmunity. And there's several labs that have done research on you know, sort of those checkpoints within the Germinal Center for controlling that and how you can actually rescue some of those autoreactive receptors. But I think what's really interesting to think about is, yeah, what's the advantage there? If you're going to evolve this, what, what is the benefit that sort of outweighs the risk of autoimmunity? And my research in sharks has shown that as they diversify their immunoglobulin repertoire over the course of, of multiple exposures to an antigen, perhaps the advantage really isn't affinity maturation, because there's there's sort of a biological ceiling, right, to affinity that you can achieve that's beneficial to a cell versus what you can do in vitro in a lab. And maybe the real benefit there is the mutations for diversification of your repertoire to deal with evol uh, rapidly evolving pathogens. So just continuing a little bit with, with the list. So we talk, the innate, the innate system is kind of similar to, uh, and quite robust, but then we're moving into the adaptive uh, immunity for, for this uh, uh, cartilaginous fish. So 
what uh, when it comes to T cells, because then we can focus on B cells, which is your actual uh, kind of focus of interest. But I have to ask, <laughs> what about the T cells? What are the populations that are found in this in these animals? Mm -hmm. So for a long time, we didn't know much about the T cells in sharks. Uh, and up until very recently, I would say. From transcriptomic evidence, we think or we hypothesize that they do have many of the T cell subsets that you see in mammals. We see a lot of the cytokines there that you would expect for things like Th1 cells, Th2 cells. We hypothesize that they may have T regulatory cells. And then a portion of my dissertation research was to figure out whether or not they have cells that might resemble T follicular helper cells. Mm -hmm. So to summarize, essentially what I found was they do appear to have T cells that are present within the B cell follicles. And using single nuclei RNA sequencing, we were able to show that there appears to be a subset of T cells that express markers that you would expect to see functional markers on T follicular helper-like cells. So they have markers of co-stimulation, Uh, CD40 ligand. They are expressing CXCR5 as a receptor. Um, several of the markers that you would expect to see as suggesting T follicular helper-like function. Uh, in addition to that, they do have gamma delta T cells. Um, they, they, they appear to have a lot of gamma delta T cells. We don't really know what they're doing. Um, they also have, what's really interesting is a unique T cell receptor where it's a gamma delta T cell receptor, but then it has a immunoglobulin, this IgNAR variable domain on top of the NAR TCR. So essentially we hypothesize that this is a unique T cell receptor that can possibly recognize soluble antigen outside of the context of MHC. Um, so that's something that hasn't entirely been proven yet, but, but that's the working hypothesis for why this receptor exists. Is there also uh, different types of MHC uh, that would maybe potentially react with different subtypes of T cells like we have in, 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 in mammalian cells? Yeah, sort of like the non-classical MHC. Is that what you're thinking about? Well, that, but also like MHC1, MHC2, we have C4s and CD8s that have very, very distinct functions. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, given that they don't have form germinal centers, maybe the CD4 cells don't have that part too. So maybe there's not something that would be equivalent to a CD4 cell in a, ma in a mammal. Uh, so, sorry, you're going back. MHCs, there are just how many different types of um, groups of, of uh, histocompatibility molecules do these uh, animals have? Yeah, for the most part, we understand that they seem to have the conventional major histocompatibility complex, you know, the MHC2 and the MHC1 uh, that we have in mammals. And, and we do know that they have, uh, or at least they appear to have CD8 T cells. You know, we can't really take them out, put them in a dish and show CD8 killer T cell function, but they have CD8. Uh, CD4 has been a little bit more difficult to identify in cartilaginous fish. It's hypothesized um, from some work from some different labs that they do have a CD4 ortholog so that they should have functional CD4 helper T cells. Um, so for the most part, we think that that system is functioning uh, very similarly to what you have in mammals. So I, I got to ask then, because we're on T cells, Brenda, um, intraepithelial lymphocytes, Tregs, or uh, and even innate lymphocytes, if you guys like ripped out shark guts, which probably smell terrible, <laughs> and, uh, seeing if there's immune Gosh. cells there. Yeah, now you're really getting into the edges of stuff that we would like to do, but we maybe haven't made that much progress on. So it is interesting to think about mucosal immunity in marine organisms. There are, are several labs that work on this in bony fish. I think it's a really interesting question considering 
that you can think about the marine environment is much more full of pathogens compared to air, which is relatively sterile. This is passing over their gills, which is a mucosal site. Um, and then sort of from a anatomical perspective, uh, a shark essentially is sort of a swimming tube, a gut, if you will, to collect food. Um, we, we hypothesize they have an immunoglobulin isotype IgW that we think is functioning in mucosal immunity. We don't have a ton of functional data, but it does seem to get secreted at mucosal sites. In terms of the T cells and innate uh, lymphocytes that may be participating in those uh, sort of immune defenses, it, it would be really cool work to, to look at that kind of stuff. We haven't, we haven't done a ton of work in that area to determine what kind of defenses they have, um, but it's definitely an interesting outstanding question that needs to be explored further. So T cells, I had my answer. I'm very satisfied and I'm very intrigued. Uh, and I hope that we keep learning more about this. Let's, let's then move on to the, 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 go back to the B cells and this, um, NAR immunoglobulins. Um, so why can't you just describe a little bit what is kind of structurally special about this particular, uh, IG, uh, type and, what is maybe is there something that we can we can uh, take from this we can learn from this molecule for our own purposes i'm thinking for example of the like nanobodies that we get from from camels mm -hmm. things like that what what is exciting about this particular uh, molecules yeah so the IgNAR isotype is a heavy chain only isotype so it does not associate with light chain Uh, like the conventional antibodies that most people are probably familiar with in mammals. Sharks do have conventional IgM, they have monomeric and pentameric IgM, uh, but then they have this heavy chain only isotype IgNAR. So there's two variable domains, you know, on each of the heavy chains of this isotype, and then you have your constant domains. But essentially what that means is that you have two independent antigen binding domains. So we can isolate these single domains, these variable domains that we call VNARs. If we immunize a shark with a target antigen, get it to make an IgNAR response against that antigen, then you can build a library of these VNARs. You can isolate the clones that bind the antigen that you're interested in. We typically do this through phage display, and then you can express those as recombinant protein, and you can use them for a variety of downstream, uh, you know, diagnostic or therapeutic or research tool uses. What's really interesting about the structure of these VNARs, they're small, they're about 12 kilodaltons in size. So that's even smaller than sort of a single chain variable fragment that you might be able to get from mammalian antibodies. And they also, some of their structures have these long extended CDR3 loops. So this sort of generates at a structural level, a finger-like projection, and this can get into cryptic sites like enzymatic clefts. So that, that really gives you a lot of diversity of structures for various uses. Um, from a broad view, sort of the use of this antibody isotype, so there's, there's all that unique stuff I just described. Also, when you think about markers that are, or, or targets that are difficult to generate immune responses in a mouse, because there's too much homology there between mouse and humans, because they're both mammals. With sharks, we have the advantage of 400 to 450 million years of evolution. You can generally get responses in a shark against targets that you couldn't get responses to in a mouse or a rabbit. So that's particularly useful when you're thinking about things like markers for cancer cells. We've worked on projects where we raised shark antibodies against breast cancer markers. Does it outcompete humans? Or do we not know? Or do we not know because you can't really do it to a person the same way? Like you're talking about sharks have a lot of evolution behind it in their ability for these antibodies to be highly, like highly specific and adaptive to a variety of things that maybe won't work in a mouse. Um, is that also true in that it can even outperform a human? And so you basically can have a humanized NAR 
downstream as a parent. Oh, I see. Where you put, yes. So you can do that. You can put these variable domains on uh, human FC receptors if you want to use it for those kind of purposes. Um, in terms of out competing, if you're thinking about binding affinities, IGNAR has a very baseline. You can find high affinity antibodies from the primary repertoire. Um, sharks can undergo affinity maturation, but it doesn't happen to the same degree that we see in mammals where you can maybe get you know, hundreds of fold difference in binding affinity after affinity maturation. In shark, we've really only seen about a tenfold difference in binding, changes in binding affinity after affinity maturation. But even sort of the baseline level of these single domains, which are, again, are very small, they can have very high specificity and high binding affinity. When you talk about affinity maturation in sharks, what, what are exactly the things that are conveyed? Because there's no hypermutation. Uh, you, you said, uh, so they, they what... do have, they do have somatic hypermutation mediated. Oh, by okay. A. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I misunderstood. They, they have no germinal center. So that was the really interesting thing or sort of the question that preceded my dissertation research was if they don't have germinal centers, how do you orchestrate B cell selection and affinity maturation? So essentially for sort of through the seventies and the eighties, when people were studying shark immune responses, they didn't think that sharks had a really robust humoral response. They didn't think that they could make antigen-specific responses, that they didn't have immunological memory, and that they didn't undergo affinity maturation. And so over the years, um, research that my boss, Dr. Helen Dooley, did, particularly with her postdoc with Dr. Martin Flanick, showed that this wasn't the case. Their immune response did have these characteristics. So we wanted to understand how they were doing this without a germinal center. So a germinal center, right, is this discernible microanatomical structure that forms in the B cell follicles after immunization in a mouse, where you have the interaction of all these, your, uh, your antigen-specific B cells getting T cell help. They're interacting with the follicular dendritic cells presenting antigen. What I found in my dissertation research is while you don't have germinal centers in the shark B cell follicles, the follicle itself appears to have the functional analogs of what you would expect to find in a germinal center. So they seem to have different polarized zones. They seem to have a central zone of selection in the middle of the follicle with an outer zone of proliferation and somatic hypermutation. And we hypothesize that these cells may be moving between these zones, undergoing B cell selection and mutating their receptors, but maybe not doing it with the same efficiency that you find in a mammalian germinal center and maybe not at the same speed. Like I said before, their responses are very slow. So maybe they only do a few rounds of rapid mutation and then they put these antigen specific cells out into the periphery. So this kind of goes with the slow motion then, right? Like it has these really good antibodies that don't require a lot of work to bind to a lot of things. Is this what you think goes along then with the evolutionary case of it's providing some advantage? And so it's it's almost at the border of adaptive and innate, right? It's adaptive because it's an antibody system that can have some maturation, but the maturation isn't that great, right? It's not getting ultra specific, but it's better than a lot of things at baseline. And so it's almost I don't want to say it's promiscuous, but it binds to a lot of things really easily that mm -hmm. would be pathogens. Um, is, is that your sense? And then, and then going along the autoimmunity, do sharks, are they then prone because of their <laughs> own antibodies to autoimmunity? Both are excellent questions. So to answer the first one, what we think is going on or what we hypothesize is because you have this pentameric IgM 
uh, which is more innate like and does sort of act, we believe, as a first line of defense and sort of sponging up pathogens before you get your monomeric IgM and your IgNAR responses going is that, yes, indeed, like you said, you were sort of already starting with a baseline level of affinity in your antigen-specific response. And so maybe there's not a ton of advantage there to undergoing affinity maturation, or you don't really have the cellular machinery to do robust affinity maturation like you see in the mammalian system. Um, in terms of autoimmunity, we really, we really don't know that much about autoimmunity in sharks. I think it's a fascinating question. Uh, it would be interesting to find out if they have functional T regulatory cells. Uh, one of the interesting things about sharks is sort of as a vertebrate lineage, they have different methods of reproduction. So you have sharks which lay eggs external outside of the mother. You have sharks which have eggs inside of the mother, the babies hatch inside the mother, and then they're born live. And then you have sharks that give live birth, um, you know, similar to how mammals give live birth. So I believe there's a hypothesis that part of the advantage or, or part of the reason we have T regulatory cells is to sort of control um, the immune response against the fetus during pregnancy. So it'd be really interesting to see if there's any relationship there in evolution between reproductive methods and sort of the role uh, and whether or not you have a robust T regulatory system. I got one more for you. When you do these shark studies, do you have to have really obnoxiously big tanks for this? Like I did zebrafish <laughs> work and zebrafish are tiny. So you can have a swim room, which smells like an aquarium, but like you have <laughs> a bajillion fish in there and these small little aquacultures. I can only imagine like your shark tanks. Yeah, so I'm at the Institute of Marine and Environmental Technology in Baltimore, where we have an excellent aquaculture center. Uh, we do have two large tanks full of sharks. I, I don't know the volume of those tanks off the size of my head, but they're much larger than a zebrafish tank. We can hold about <laughs> 20 nurse sharks per tank. They're not as large. Nurse sharks can get up to five or six feet in length. I've worked with wild nurse sharks in the Florida Keys before, and they're very strong animals. Uh, the sharks we work with tend to be more in the two to three foot range. So they're a little bit easier to manage. Well, one of the questions I always get asked is how do you immunize a shark uh, compared to a mouse? Um, I think it's not as hard as immunizing a mouse. I think they certainly try to bite you less than a mouse does. Um, so what we do is uh, we can remove the sharks from the tank using a net. Uh, we can anesthetize them in a smaller tank full of water and anesthesia. And then it's very easy for us to immunize them. We generally give them a shot in the pectoral fin with adjuvant, similar to how you would get a shot in the arm for a vaccine. And then we can also boost with soluble antigen intravenously later if we want to. And then we can just do blood samples from sort of the base of the tail by, by accessing a vein there. And then we put them back in the main tank. We hold them for a little bit, sort of let them come around. Um, after they've gotten used to that a few times, they're generally too not, not too upset by the process. And, and some of them even think that they're going to get a reward if they do it. So they'll swim up to the top of the tank when you come down. But I think it's much easier than immunizing mice. I have to say it's fascinating. I'm just imagining you just like like they handling. I mean, two to three feet feet is not that small. I'm sorry, but like, <laughs> it's like it's still pretty big. And so you say they do bite. Do they bite each other? Do you need to like keep them separate by sex or by like some kind of familial uh, uh, organization, or you can just keep them all together and they just they're just fine? We keep them all together. It does depend on the species. The nurse sharks are fairly comfortable. We don't have to separate them by sex. There are some species of shark which will get aggressive if you sort of keep males and females together. Um, part of that probably is because we keep the tanks at a constant temperature year round. And so nurse sharks have a seasonal mating season uh, naturally in Florida and in the Caribbean. So because the temperature doesn't change, they probably don't get any signals to start getting aggressive with each other. They're generally social as long as their fellow shark is not 
uh, much smaller than them. They won't try and eat each other. You do kind of have to watch out when you're reviving somebody who's been under anesthesia. One of his friends might come along and see, are you still my friend or are you a possible meal? But for the most part, that's not an issue. With the nurse sharks, to be honest, they're, they're sort of bottom-dwelling sharks. They Instead of sort of the serrated teeth you might think about in a typical shark species, they have more of these plates for crunching crustaceans that they might find in the reef. So they're generally not a threat to them uh, trying to bite us, but when they get larger, their, their tails are very strong and you have to be careful taking a large adult animal out of the water uh, because they will try and hit you with that tail to get back into the water. And I have been hit before and it's not fun, but for the most part, it's, it's a fairly easy routine procedure for us. Yeah, I think I was going to go ask him uh, if the fun question here, the but he can't question. answer shark. All right. So here we go. Okay. Go ahead. So we could probably talk about sharks for a long time. It sounds like. So if you were not a scientist, but you could not be a shark, <laughs> just putting that there now, what would you do? And why? If I could not be a scientist and if I had done a different career path, I love movies. And I think I would have really liked to have been involved in either directing movies, making movies, writing movies. I think that's a career path that would have involved maybe more creative expression than science, uh, but probably would have involved a lot more rejection of ideas than science, perhaps. Have you written a lot of grants lately? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's, it may be on par. The grass is always greener. <laughs> I do think so. Hanover, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about such an interesting uh, topic that I knew pretty much nothing about. Thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoy your show. So it was a great time. Awesome. Well, thank you again. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Podcast or via email info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or suggest guests. See you next time.